Hey everyone, welcome to K-Pop Bookshelf. This podcast is where we will be exploring Korean popular culture through books. I'm the host of this podcast, Mina, and I can't wait to talk about books with you. This is the second episode of our Pride season, a season where we will be reading about LGBTQ plus stories. Just a brief note that I know that not all terms are used by all people in this community, so I will be using certain words which not everyone will identify with, but I will be doing my best given these constraints. Also, be sure to check out my first episode of this season, where I talk a lot about queer issues and history in Korea. Also, a note that we will be discussing adult subject matter. So you may want to be aware of that if you are sensitive to this, or if you are listening with others who may be sensitive to this as well. The book that we are taking down from the bookshelf today is Love in the Big City by Sangyong Park. Sangyong Park is a queer Korean author in his 30s. The book is a fiction novel that is very humorous, even as it tackles some serious subject matters. Sangyong Park won the 2016 Munhak Dongne New Writers Award for a work called Searching for Paris Hilton. Unfortunately, I could not find an English version of this work. He also won the 2018 and 2019 Young Writers Award and the 2019 Hogyeon Literary Award. The Korea Society, an American organization based in New York City, did a question and answer with Park about this book. It's on YouTube and the link will be in my show notes. I will also link some other interviews with him as well. I'm so excited because in this episode, you'll be hearing my discussion about this book with guests from the Gogo Gayo podcast. I'll be joined by Radhika and K-Squared. After I listened to their episode about queerness and K-pop, I just had to invite them on, and I'm so honored that they agreed to be my guests. Please check out the Gogo Gayo podcast. Both Radhika and K-Squared are so insightful and eloquent, and I loved having them on my pod. Before we listen to the discussion, I just wanted to review a few things about the book. First of all, the book was translated by translator Anton Hur, H-U-R, who is Korean and who is himself a gay man. Anton wrote a lovely essay about seeing himself in this book. I have linked to it as well. Also, some of you may think of a certain other person when you hear the name Kylie, but I wanted to bring your attention to the hugely successful Australian pop star and entertainer Kylie Minogue. Kylie Minogue has a huge international fan base, and I know she has a large number of gay fans as well. Kylie Minogue is one of the author Sang Young Park's favorite musicians as well, and, well, there's something about her in the book. Finally, a quick rundown of the characters in this book. The main character is Young, a gay man living in Seoul, who the book follows throughout his life from a 19-year-old student to an adult who is in his late 20s or early 30s, I'd guess. Young's best friend in his college days is a heterosexual cis woman named Jaehee. Jaehee's character comes back at various points throughout Young's life. Young's mother is the only family member in his life. His relationship with his mom is complex, to say the least. The Hyung boyfriend, and I mean Hyung as in the Korean word that men use to refer to their older brother or other older guys, is one of Young's boyfriends who we meet in this book. Gyuho is another one of Young's boyfriends. Gyuho is from Jeju Island. And now let's listen to the discussion I had with Radhika and K-Squared from the Gogo Gayo podcast about the book Love in the Big City. Today we're talking to Radhika and K-Squared from the Gogo Gayo podcast. Welcome. Would you please tell us a little bit about your podcast and maybe a little bit about yourselves? Sure. I'm Radhika. I started the Gogo Gayo podcast 
a couple of years ago now. Right now we're on kind of hiatus because I'm generally on hiatus as a human being. And we started it just like as a way to discuss how K-pop spread into America and just like sort of bring to light some of the conversations that aren't generally had in the K-pop fan space. So like some of the things are like how K-pop spreads into America and like how English language plays into that. And then like recent episodes are more like political, so like queerness in K-pop and things like that. Yeah. Okay. And K-Squared, did you want to talk about yourself or the podcast or anything? Yeah. So I'm K-Squared. I'm an occasional co-host, but a full-time friend of the Go Go Gaia podcast. I was brought on after I converted Radhika into my day. And we ended up just really clicking about, you know, things we wanted to talk about and wanted more people to talk about when it comes to K-pop and what it means to be a K-pop fan and its influence across the globe. I love day six. So I know you guys have a lot of episodes about BTS and I really loved like what Radhika was saying, some of the more political episodes, the queerness in K-pop one was really amazing because you talk about everything from fan fiction to fan service and then idols pushing gender boundaries or gender norms. And I also liked the episode about bullying. So you guys definitely talk about a lot of different things on the Go Go Gaio podcast. But today you are joining us to talk about Love in the Big City by Song Young Park. Let's talk first about just your general perceptions of the book or your general take on the book. Maybe we can start with you, Radhika. Sure. I actually just finished it yesterday or the day before, I think. And then yesterday I was just doing like general notes. It really came together for me. I think like the, it's like kind of like an anthology or like an omnibus, I think is how he refers to it. So it's like a collection of four different stories. And at first you're like, okay, this is who the person is. And then towards the end, I was really starting to connect with the character. And now I like really feel connected with the main character. So I really enjoyed it. The more I think about it, the more I'm like, wow, that's like, there was a lot of intention and a lot of really like depth to his writing. And it just gets like more and more meaningful as I continue to think about it. I think that's like my general takeaway. Yeah, I know from my perspective, uh, this is my second time actually doing a read through of it. I consume a lot of queer Asian content. And this book in particular stood out to me because of how real it was. Nothing was like polished. Nothing was pretty. It was very human. It was imperfect. It was flawed. And I absolutely loved Mm -hmm. it about it. And I think the second time around, I really got to like really see that and understand it a bit better. Just some of the commentary that's hidden in it as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I noticed that too. It was really nuanced and a lot of almost political stuff. Yeah, political stuff, I would say that he talks about as well as just being a young person living his life, especially in the beginning of the book. So I think we'll tell our listeners that from this point forward, there will be spoilers in case anyone cares about that. So feel free to talk about spoilers. (laughs) Maybe we can go through like story by story. That might be easier. So the first story is called Jehi. Do you guys have any thoughts about Jehi or something you want to say about that story? I I did want to say I absolutely love her. (laughs) Like even with like how like problematic people might think she was, she was just such a strong human being who was just like, this is who I am. This is what I'm going to do. This is who I'm going after. Like, and I loved her so much and her friendship with the narrator. Mm -hmm. Yeah. A very strong character. Like I feel like a way 
she really comes off the page. Like as a writer, when I'm like writing a character, I always want to like make sure that I know the person and like any situation you put the person in, you know what she would do. And I feel like Jaehee is one of those characters where you just like have such a clear idea of who she is. And it's not like literal at all. It's just by like experience and like getting to know her. And it's not even that much. Like the first story wasn't even that long. It was just like right off the bat. We just got to know her so well, which I thought was cool. Yeah, she was like a whirlwind. And just to jog the memory of anyone listening to this. So Jaehee is the narrator whose name is Young's best friend. She's a cis straight, I think we can safely say woman. And Mm -hmm. he's a gay man. And she is so rambunctious. She's just like, lives like second by second. She's a little like a little wild (laughs) and she's really lives life. She's just like, I'm going to hook up with everyone. I'm going to drink everything. I'm going to like not go to school or their college classes. I thought a lot about the translation of this and how the translator, I thought from what I could tell, obviously I didn't read, I couldn't read the Korean version, but how cool it was that I feel like he probably matched the pace of how the Korean writing was and how these characters were coming like kind of off the page and they're very like, it wasn't even that they were three-dimensional, but it was just like very like K-squared was saying like real, so realistic. I feel like we all know people like that are like a little bit of a mess, like kind of messy people. I love that about her. Yeah. I think even Anton Her, who was the translator, kind of talked about how, you know, there was slang in it. And so he was able to go back and like, he really took his time where some of the sentences were really familiar to him. And so it was easy for him to translate. But then he was like, like, what is the perfect curse word translation in English to convey, you know, the Korean? And so he took a lot of care with it. And you can really tell. So his care with the translation matched with the author's writing. I mean, everything just kind of like was a seamless transition into English, at least from my perspective. I think so. And and then as the stories, because Radhika mentioned it was four stories or the omnibus of four stories. And she would crop up in the other stories or crop up like here and there. And the progression of her from like this 19 year old wild child or whatever age they were at that point to like a married, settled professional woman was so fascinating to me, at least. I thought that was really interesting how they, how that was written and how she sort of calmed down. And since we took a lot of notes about this, maybe we can talk about some of the aspects that were brought up in the character of Jehi. One of which was her abortion. So since we're, this is spoilers abound here, we can talk about, do you guys have anything to say about the abortion scene? Not the scene, but you know what I mean? Yeah, not really. I mean, I I think it it wasn't like jarring or anything. I think the, it was very normalized, I think in his writing and just like the things that she was going through and like the immediate response where she was like, I'm pregnant. And then he was like, okay, let's go get an abortion, you know? And that was like a very normal thing. The like struggle that they went through to like find a clinic and stuff was really interesting, I think. Definitely relatable given the current climate. Yeah, our current uh, climate in the States. I think it was interesting because he, the character of Young, as he was helping her go through this like, you know, abortion provider hunt and how she was like, recovering from her abortion, everything, he was like, wow, life is hard for gay men, but also really hard for women, (laughs) which was, um, I don't know. I thought that, I just thought that was so funny how he said that and realized that. And I think if listeners uh, may not know, I should mention that abortion was illegal in Korea and South Korea up until very recently, whereas now you can do 
abortions in the early stages and insurance will cover it and things like that. And that's mentioned at the end of the book where he sort of uh, touches on some of the different changes in pre-society. I had this thought about Jehi. I really thought it was interesting because Young is also just like keeping pace with her and being wild and trying to be a little bit carefree. He's also just like making out with whoever and he almost doesn't even care that it's in public. I feel like we don't see the depictions of that kind of liberated like chasing of whoever, especially amongst, you know, LGBT folks in Korea. And I thought it was interesting that he was at this age where I think some of us can relate to that, like certain ages or stages of our life where we're like very much not in the same orbit as our parents. Cause he like all his time, energy, care, affection, everything was for Jehi. And he didn't really care about his partners, his like boyfriends, whatever they were. He didn't really care about that much about his other friends. He would ditch them all the time for her. He would drop everything for her. They moved in together as friends. And when she thought someone was like lurking outside her apartment, he ditched everything and and went to her. So that was, I thought, like a really special friendship. And I think that's like a hallmark of youth where you have these people you're just like latched onto, like ride or die. And then as you get older, that relationship changes. Like I said earlier, that was really interesting dynamic to see the change as well as the original friendship they had. Yeah, I really loved that allyship, actually, because I feel like we it's like a fairly common like tokenization that like a straight female or cis straight female have to like, you know, the the gay best friend or whatever. And I never felt like that was how Young was treated from her perspective. And also like his growth as like a gay man with her support was like really expedited kind of, especially because he was just like. They were sleeping together. They're both sleeping together with men, right? And they were just like supporting each other in that like exploration of their sexuality. And it wasn't anything like, oh, you're gay, you're straight, or like different. It was just like they were just supporting each other constantly. And I really loved that aspect. And even in like a broader sense, whenever I was reading it too, just their like chosen family relationship. And I think, Mina, you mentioned something earlier too, where To me, I kind of saw it more broadly as like we can have women and gay men or even more broadly, the LGBT community form this union because they do have very similar experiences, you know, such as whenever she had to get an abortion and he had to go and get tested for HIV and that whole situation, you know, which is actually very similar. And so the way that their relationship is really depicted, I really see that as them being like, hey, we're one in the same. We should join forces because we're family. Yeah, that was really awesome. What did you guys think about when? Jay, he essentially outed him to her fiance. Any thoughts there? I will say that I kind of understood where she was coming from because like jealous boyfriend tropes or jealous boyfriends in general are a thing and having to explain, especially when you have like those youthful, really joined at the hip friendships or relationships, whatever platonic or romantic relationships that you have with people. Sometimes other people are like, what is that? Like, what are you doing? What is that? What's happening? And she was hiding her even like that he was in his life. She like made up a a girl's name for him. She was really keeping it under wraps. And I think she was backed into a corner by the boyfriend as far as like, who is this person? And she could not under that pressure, like come up with anything more creative. So she just went with the truth. But he was so betrayed and was like kind of done with her at that moment. So did you, Radhika, did you have any thoughts on that? I think the way it was written, I found to be, actually pretty relatable I think there's like so much pressure especially I mean I really felt bad for her in that moment because she has like a very specific personality and we know what she wants from life but it's like 
a severe departure from what Korean society expects from women. And so I already it feels like she's in a situation that she doesn't like 100, like maybe even 50% wants to be in, you know? And so she's like having to like make all these sacrifices and like a huge sacrifice is like probably having to like split up from one of her best friends and sort of like explain to the straight guy that has like no empathy for gay people that her best friend is gay and all of that. So I think I really like, I think I just felt bad for her because she didn't know how to navigate that situation. And it was like confusing. Hey, Square, did you have any thoughts on like how at the wedding, for example, he was sort of like the, he being the fiance, later husband resigned to like, okay, this person is like around and we like, he wasn't as like, homophobic as I thought he might be after he knew. Did you have any, did you guys have either of you have any thoughts on that or case Gray, Did you have any thoughts on that? I, I still like, even though I've read this a couple of times, trying to wrap my head around it a little bit because like it, <laughs> I've been in situations like that before where it is just kind of like, it's not necessarily like upfront homophobia, but it's very microaggressions, like avoidance and stuff like that. And even looking at some of the statistics within the Korean context, you know, people are like, oh, it's okay for people to be gay. Just, I don't want them to be my neighbors. I don't want to see it. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of like the feeling when he was, the narrator was at the uh, wedding was everyone was just like, okay, you're fine, but like, get away from me. Like, I, I'm not homophobic, mm-hmm. but like back off. So I just kind of, my skin crawls a little bit when I think of that scene, <laughs> to be honest. That was, that was so, the wedding stuff was so cringy and he's just like belting out whatever, like K-pop and they were like, or what it was, he's like, maybe it was Kylie at that point. They all seemed weirded out by him (laughs) or like they were laughing at him, not with him. It was definitely awkward Mm -hmm. because you were talking about like Korean society and Korean everything. Let's move to the next story, which was it's called Abide of Rockfish Tastes the Universe. And in this chapter, just to recap briefly, the character of Young is contending with his mom's uterine cancer, which is recurrent. And then he also at this time has an older boyfriend who is a lot more closeted, kind of seems self-hating. And they really don't see eye to eye and it's not really clear why they're together. <laughs> Anyone want to say something about that, Radhika? I had a lot of thoughts about this story, actually, because I wasn't aware of how, how much like communism or like that sort of political aspect played into like a millennial's love life, kind of. And at first I was actually like deeply confused about this guy who was just like not being able to address who he was. And then I had to like take a step back and I was like, I was literally born in 97. I can't like relate to this at all. But that was like, once I watched his interview with the Korea Society, he talked about that. And you mean the author, the author's interview with the Korean Society. Sorry, I didn't write. Sorry. Yeah. He talked about that a lot in that interview. And I really liked the fact that he integrated that into the book because while I was reading it, I wasn't able to understand it. But now that I can see where he was coming from on that, it's like such a, honestly, it's like almost generational, intergenerational trauma, like the way that politics have changed so aggressively in Korean society. And that, of course, impacts like how the gay and queer culture like plays out. And then I was like, okay, this guy is just like really homophobic. And that's just how he's going to have to go through his life. But I'm, the fact that it was impacting young was like really, it was really sad. Honestly, it was actually heartbreaking. And K-Square, did you have any thoughts on that? Or did you know about that kind of generational divide? 
I was more focused on his relationship with his mom in this section, I will be honest. With his romantic relationship, though, like the entire time I was just sitting there like, why are you with this guy? You know, because he's just protecting his own internal homophobia onto you. You know, he's really trying to be what his definition or excuse me, the traditional definition of a man is in Korean society. And he hates himself for loving men. And so that just kind of irritated me the whole time. (laughs) Yeah, relatable. (laughs) Yeah. I was going to say before we get into the mom, um, some of my other episodes I covered. So there's like a generation of Koreans called the 386 generation. And they're probably like whatever is between boomer and millennials that Gen X, I guess we would say Gen X. I don't think they say that in Korea, but anyway. They were people who became really socially conscious and socially aware because they were under dictatorships and under this new neoliberalism, and they were constantly doing student protests. And the way the author Park Sang-young described the young boyfriend character was that he would have been born maybe in like the late 70s or something and like lived through more so like the tail end of like these pro-democracy protests that students were in like the 80s, like 1987 and between the 70s and 80s, basically, there were like all these student protests, pro-democracy, anti-dictatorship, and people were being disappeared and people were jailed and people were tortured. And so he is definitely clinging to this idea of masculinity that is more traditional and more patriarchal. Whereas Young is like a millennial, which now is, I would be interested in like a sequel where like he's dating like a Gen Z person. But for millennials, they had kind of relatively speaking more economic stability and they didn't have to worry as much about, I mean, they still had dictatorships and had the IMF crisis in 1997, where a lot of people went bankrupt, the whole country went bankrupt and there's all these issues, but they're a little bit unburdened uh, with all these like social causes. I think the character of Young is like less interested in that, less attached to that. And then to segue into the mother character, she's of an even earlier generation, like baby boomer, I guess you'd say, where And I'll let K-Square just talk about her and her dynamics. Yeah. So I just, I I really focused on the women in this book. So that's why I kind of focused more on like his relationship with his mom. And I think the biggest thing I got out of the chapter was how there's this woman, she's dying of cancer, but then she's sitting here preaching about how homosexuality is the disease. And I was just like, I don't know the word to describe it, but I just thought it was a really interesting kind of dynamic that they played on there. And heartbreaking too, at the same, because it is like very much a harsh reality, you know, with the focus on family and the familial structure in Korea and how important it is to like, you know, respect your elders and how important the family unit is. And to have that kind of like clashing relationship with your parents or with your mom in this case is absolutely heartbreaking and devastating because of how important that relationship is. So her constantly touting, like, you know, you need to go to God to help you to convert, to like stop these ways. Like it it was just sitting there like, oh man, like, come on, definitely old school thinking there for lack of better phrase. Yeah. And also in the interview with the Korea Society, the author Park Sang-young, he talks about his mom growing up in a much more patriarchal society than even Korea is now, which I think by our terms probably already is fairly patriarchal, but even more. And that he's explained it as like a lot of women had to turn to something for solace and a lot of them turned to God or the church as an institution. And I felt like general depictions of religiousness in Korea, whether it's like real life news where there's like, you know, anti-pride and anti-LGBT protests staged by like conservative religious people. We have a quote from this Korean American. She was born in Korea. She's a gay Korean activist, Juhi Judy Han. And she goes back and forth from Korean and U.S. And she said that, quote, conservative evangelical churches are the biggest stumbling block to LGBT rights and equality in South Korea, end quote. So 
And I bring that up because, you know, it sounded like his mom, Young, the character's mom, sent him to conversion therapy. And I I connected it to her churchiness. <laughs> did you guys pick up on that? Or did you think that? Or Radhika, did you want to talk about that? It seemed like she thought it was literally a mental illness because she sent him to like a psychiatric ward situation and then they had him there for a while and then I think they like did their thing for like a a week or so and then or I'm not sure I'm not sure about the exact timeline but it wasn't that long and then they like asked him about his relationship with his mom and then he explained just generally what his mom's vibe is. And then they were like, okay, I feel like we need, we have the wrong person here. I think we need your mom in this ward, not you. Um, yeah. So yeah. But aside from that, I think that like whole scene was upfront triggering for me. <laughs> so yeah, I actually forgot that they, the psychiatrist like turn it around and try to send the mom to therapy because this story is about to make me totally despondent until that happens, <laughs> even though I don't think she learned her lesson or anything, but yeah, I thought that's interesting that he's just keeps being like, no, you're the one with the problem, not me. The next story is love in the big city, which is also the title of the book. And this is where the character of young is now dating Kyuhyo from Jeju who speaks with the dialect. He sounds a little country bumpkinish, and he's a nurse and he knows about Kylie. So Case Guard, would you like to explain to listeners what is Kylie in the context of this book? So Kylie is a wonderful singer, but of course, Young actually is diagnosed with HIV AIDS. And so he names it Kylie because she always sticks with him. And so that was kind of like his inside joke with himself there. I don't remember too much from this section, I will be honest. So if someone could help me out on this one. Yeah. He gets HIV AIDS from the military, right? There was just somebody that was like sleeping around a lot and he happened to get with him. And then he actually gets kicked out of the military because he's diagnosed with HIV AIDS. Yeah, I thought it was very cute that he named (laughs) the HIV AIDS Kylie. I thought that was just like a really interesting dark humor touch that he talks about also in the Korea Society interview and also just like gives more character to like him as a person and lightens the whole like I can't have any kind of sex other than protected sex and just like changes his entire experience. Yeah, I looked up some statistics about HIV in Korea. So There are actually clinics that will test anonymously and for free HIV as well as other STIs. And the military service does test men for this at the time of their service. And I guess maybe throughout their service or when they get ill. And yes, the character of Young was medically discharged as a result of his HIV. The other thing I wanted to mention about this is that although HIV has been around in Korea, at least since 1985, they kind of have a low prevalence of it from what they know. I mean, there's a lot of lack of disclosure of this of people's HIV status, but there's kind of like a low prevalence. And I was looking at medical journals about this, medical journal articles about this. And part of it is because they are so into preventative care. PrEP, which is a drug you can take if you're not already HIV positive to prevent the possibility that you will contract HIV is something that's now covered in Korea under insurance and something that's available to them. I don't know that it was with the, by the time the book was written, because he mentions this as well, along with the abortion thing at the end of the book. 
And then I, the other thing I liked about this chapter, this is where he's going out in Itaewon a lot, a lot with like just clubbing. He's got his like posse of friends on the group chat that he calls Tiara after the K-pop girl group. And each member of his friends is named after a member of the group. And I thought, yeah, like despite the fact that he has this, what, especially like if you are a millennial, which I am, then you used to think of HIV AIDS as like completely devastating, completely depressing and horrible and the worst thing, but he's like living his life. He's still having fun. He's got these darker moments where someone will joke about like, they'll be at a club in Itaewon, a gay club in Itaewon. Someone will walk by and for some reason they're like, oh, that guy probably has HIV. I don't really know what kind of joke that is or if that translates from Korean to English, but they'll joke about this and he would feel these moments of like, oh God, but I have, I have HIV. But otherwise he was just like living his life in a, in a way normalized it, which I found not that I have this experience at all, but it's so reassuring probably. So if other people who read this book also have HIV or HIV AIDS, read this book, they might feel like, actually, it's like, I'm not like the only person or like, this is not the end of the world. I, I'm actually kind of curious about that. Cause I do know here in the United States, at least like anytime you go to a pride event, it, it's always like, here's information on HIV prevention and care. Here's like all these resources, like everyone's very outspoken. And even to this day, like I've noticed even outside of the LGBT community, even straight cis people know about HIV care. And so I'm curious, like how knowledgeable the general community is in Korea, or if it's kind of like hush hush still, or you don't talk about it. Like, cause I know that like their prides, they definitely have that education, but like, do people know about it? And so like, even with this representation in the book, like you said, it, it kind of like normalizes it in a sense and makes it like still serious, but not as scary as like a death sentence of what most people think it is, you know, that it is treatable. It's something you can live with. And that's just like a plus representation to have, because it does open up that door to have that conversation of like, what is this? Like, how do you live with it? Like, okay, like you can be calmer about it as you discuss it. I will say in my research that I think a lot of it is chalked up to the Korean CDC, KCDC, who were also big heroes during the COVID-19 efforts early on. They are, they must just have a stellar public health program, generally speaking. But in, as far as like general public's awareness of HIV AIDS, one of the studies I saw was about this whole thing about HIV disclosure and the stigma of HIV AIDS. It is considered a sin, number one, to be gay and like some sort of like, I think there's like a correlation of in people's minds that like contracting HIV and being gay is sort of like your punishment mm-hmm. for being gay. And, and a lot of people, like they did surveys of people, general public in Korea, a lot of people would not eat a meal, share a meal with someone who they knew was HIV positive, they probably wouldn't hire them. That's actually part of the reason why anonymous testing is done. I've read when I was researching Kim Ji-young, there's just generally this idea of like your public health information. And I don't know what the like laws are like HIPAA, like we have in the States in Korea, but there's, there's an idea, whether this is true or not, that your potential employer could access your medical records. So there's a lot of fear around that. So it's actually good that in Korea, you can get HIV tested, at least in Seoul, tested for free and anonymously, because there's such a huge stigma and huge fear that any of your medical records could become. That's why that what I was referencing was regards to people seeking psychiatric care or mental health care. People don't want to do that because they're afraid that their potential employer or university they want to go to will find out that they sought this care and then they were they wouldn't have a chance to get that job or be get that spot. So just some uh, background info. So the next story, the last story of the book was called Late Rainy Season Vacation. And in this story, the narrator Young goes to Bangkok, Thailand. 
it's basically a vacation to Bangkok the whole time he spends it thinking about Gyoho, who was his Jeju boyfriend with whom he is broken up. So any thoughts on this story? I love Gyoho. <laughs> He's so cute. And I love their relationship. And I love how they're like constantly going to different cities. Now that I'm sort of steeped in this book, after finishing it and thinking about the title, like Love in the Big City, and then just thinking about how like they move from city to city and like what each city meant to them. I thought it was really cool the way he like was reminiscing on like Gyuho and then his like current perception of Bangkok as a city because I didn't actually know that Bangkok is low-key considered like the gay capital of East Asia or like I guess Bangkok is Southeast Asia. Asia. So that was really cool. I really liked that. Yeah I just thought kind of like bouncing off what Radhika said I thought it was interesting how he had like the two different experiences in Bangkok and how it made him perceive the city a bit differently each time. But I absolutely love how they did go to Bangkok, though, because like it is one of the, the gay meccas, so to speak, in Southeast Asia. I think even Anton Hur said, uh, said in one of his interviews that like he goes every year to Bangkok. Like you just go. <laughs> yes. And Anton Hur, I don't remember if we said it, is the translator of the book. He's also a gay man. We might have said this anyway. I'll say it again. I really liked how just like the cities were written because I felt like, okay, I'm in Bangkok with them. And it's very like vivid how he describes, uh, especially like Bangkok and just like the beachiness and just how great they feel when they're there. And even like the shopping, you know, all of that was, was interesting. And I just, I thought it was interesting that he kept kind of pining for Gyuho the whole time that he was with this other like you know, more impressive guy, quote unquote, because there is times where young throughout the books does seem kind of shallow. Like he's like, these people are boring. This guy's hot or whatever. <laughs> and Gyuho, like we said earlier, is a little bit uh, naive, I, I think would be the nice way to say it. And he's a little more humble. He's, he's working as a nurse. It's not good or bad. And even when describing, you know, China or Thailand or Korea or Japan, he's talking about how it relates to him as a gay man with HIV and how in China, he couldn't go to China to live because immigrants are subjected to blood tests. I'm not really sure what the laws are in China. So I don't know if it's true or like how strict they are about allowing people with HIV positive status. And Gyuho's loyalty just being like, I'll go for you and I'll take the test. <laughs> like, I'll just take your blood test. We look the same kind of. I, I just thought his loyalty didn't come across as like pathetic, if you know what I mean. Like sometimes I'm watching K-dramas or like reading a book and there's like this very loyal companion. It almost comes across as like they're just sadly attached to this other person. Gyuho didn't feel like that to me. What did you guys think about that? Yeah, Gyuho is like a good, just good boy, kind of. And I think from the beginning, Young thinks that Gyuho is just better than him, which is relatable, I guess. But I mean, it's not true at all. But I think like towards the end when he like, their relationship dissolves and like Yuho goes to Shanghai. I feel like primarily the reason why that happens, because he tells Yuho to leave is because he just like feels like he's holding Yuho back or like he's just not good enough for Yuho. And I, it's heartbreaking, but it's, it's very relatable. I know it was like the one relationship, the one like, you know, the healthiest relationship in the whole book. Yeah. And he pushed him away. Yeah. And I was like, <laughs> no. <laughs> just the hopeless romantic in me was very disappointed but it is very realistic because young throughout the book he very much had this like 
you know, like, oh, I'm fat. Like I'm not the best looking guy. He was very self-deprecating. And so, and that really translated into a lot of his relationships, which is why I think like he might've stayed in some of the more unhealthy ones because he was like, oh, I'm punching up. Like, you know, I'm proving that like, maybe I could do it. And then once he found someone who was kind of, you know, the healthiest relationship, all of a sudden he was like, oh no, 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 no. Like I don't deserve this. <laughs> like this is too good. So it was heartbreaking. Yeah. It was interesting too. Like with Gyuho, he wasn't, it wasn't about like sex. Cause every, everybody else, it was just like, he almost didn't even like anyone else that much. He kind of liked that older guy, young guy, but that guy was treating him like crap. And Gyuho, even though he kind of looked down on him, Gyuho just was like, so accepting and not like putting all these expectations or burdens. Cause even Jaehee, I think made him feel like he was with the popular girl or something. I don't know if you read this the same way. And Gyuho was just, Gyuho didn't have super high aspirations to of himself. He's like, I'm just going to be like a practical guy and live a practical life. And he's so helpful. Their relationship was more emotionally intimate, I think. And it just shows again, like the growth of Young as a character from age 19 to, I'll, I don't know, I'll say like 30, whatever, however it is at the end was interesting. And even the fact when he's away from, apart from Gyuho, he's with this like on paper, more impressive, <laughs> impressive guy. He still just wanted Gyuho. So I think that's growth, right? Yeah. And Gyuho's loyalty, just like, even like until the end, because when he, they first start dating, Young is like, I have Kylie. So like, do you still want to date me? And then Gyuho is like, yeah, I do. And then later on when he like finds the pharmacy to get prep so that they can have sex and then like uh, just like up until the very end and then the cutest moment I feel like was when he like wrote Gyuho's name on the lantern and like let it float up. Yeah. That was really. It was like all the things I could ever want in the world and all I wanted was him and I was just like oh you close the book and then you're just like, I need to sit on this. Yeah, totally. That it's like a K drama ending or something almost. Um, it's really good. I think I said a lot about the growth that young experience. I don't have a ton else to say about this particular story to me. It was like, not my most favorite of the stories, but it ended so well, like you guys said, and I think did tie the whole book together really well at the end. But I just have to say just a general last few impressions of the book was like, it was so cool to see this like very unabashed gay guy talking about his life frankly and also with Jaehee too both young people living lives like freely and frankly in Korea where I think with our perspective living in the states it's like we just see a lot of limitations like how idols can't date and like you know you can't be gay and like you can't do this or that but it shows I think especially for us being a non-Korean audience that it's not as simple as that or as simple as like some things would lead you to believe. What did you guys think overall? I mean, overall in every single place in the world, like the grass is not greener on the other side. Like it's cliche, but it's true. There is always this nuance. And I think a hopeful thing that I get out of this is that like wherever you are in the world, humans and the community, especially the LGBT community, like we will find a way to live and thrive. You know, it's never an easy path, but it's something that we can do and we've done before and we'll continue to do. And so to me, even though this book like has kind of like more of a realistic, borderline depressing tone in certain ways, I do think it is a very hopeful thing seeing that like here is the chosen family that he is, you know, found. 
Here is his growth over the years. Here, you know, is Itaewon, his safe space, like, you know, and the freedom to love and just to be, you know, in certain spaces. Like he found a way to exist. And that was within the big city, you know. There is that, you know, downside where it can feel kind of isolated at certain points. But, you know, that anonymity is power so that he can find love and that he can be who he is and find a community and be accepted. So that's kind of what I got from it. Yeah, I found it really fascinating that the author himself, I don't think, identifies as queer, but the translator does. And that like, they both do. They both, they both do. do. Yeah, this book was like borderline uh, semi-autobiographical, the author okay. said, because a lot of this was inspired by his own experiences, which is how the translator was able to be like, oh my God, no, I've probably been to that club in Taiwan, like, and, and stuff like that. Like, I know exactly what he's talking about, so. Okay, so in the Korea Society interview, I don't know how thoroughly you watched that interview. I like... I was actually, I couldn't tell if he was being sarcastic or not when he was talking about, because the interviewer asked him if he, if he, this is considered like queer fiction, but I guess I think he was talking more about like fiction versus queer fiction. And just like the fact that this book was like boxed into the genre of queer fiction because it's about a queer character and it's not just like fiction. So it's not like mainstream he was, I think, being a little bit coy. He was he was being sarcastic. And I also think that it means things for him to like be like just state openly that he's gay. So, you know, it's so funny because I follow the author on Instagram and at the time of this recording, he's in Bangkok right now. So he's, he's chilling right now in Thailand. <laughs> so I hope he's having a good time. Yeah. So both the author and the translator both happen to be gay. And he does talk about in the Korea Society interview that he, it's not like he picked Anton her just because he's gay or anything. He was like, I just want whoever's the best person. One of the other things I remember from that discussion was that he was saying anyone who writes about gay characters is automatically writing gay fiction, if you want to like mm-hmm. call it that as a genre. And then he said, maybe we should parcel out people who are writing about gay characters, but are not themselves gay versus people who are, who are gay and writing about gay characters. And he didn't really yeah. like I don't think fall on one side or the other of that. He was just sort of bringing it up as like food for thought. But yeah, they both, as far as I know, identify as gay. And um, and Anton has a has a husband and he lives in Korea with the husband. So I follow them on social media. So I kind of know all this. And Anton does a lot of other translations as well for Korean books. So I feel like after reading this book and with the recent conservative wins election wise within Korea, I think it's more important now than ever that we as an international audience and consumers of Korean content should continually educate ourselves and to support these communities, however we see fit, whether it is to read these books or just seek out activists or articles and information. And so I did want to plug in just two organizations for the LGBT community in Korea. If you are moved to go ahead and support them or educate yourselves, which I highly recommend, please look up Beyond the Rainbow Foundation. They're one of the largest foundations in Korea. They do various events. And then also one that's closer to my heart is called Ding Dong. It's actually the first and only LGBT youth crisis center in Korea. And so I did want to plug in those two organizations after reading this book because, you know, with everything happening, the instability everywhere in the world, it's in Korea as well. And now more than ever, we do need to support our, you know, friends over in Korea as well. So please seek out these organizations and more books like this as well. 
Very good point. I was going to mention when I was talking about the free clinic and anonymous clinics that do HIV testing, those clinics have sort of had to divert their resourcing to COVID-19. And as a result, some of the ones that are run by nonprofits, I guess is the right word for that, that are not governmental, they need funding. And so if you're in Korea or you have a way to help them out, I'll put the links for Beyond the Rainbow Foundation and Ding Dong. And I'll have to look into more about the HIV clinics, but for sure, those two will be in the show notes. So you guys can do that and definitely support authors such as Park Sang-young. Thank you both so much for joining me and for your insight. I know we're going to have another episode with you guys. I'm so excited to, to do that. Yeah, it was awesome. Yeah, thanks for having us. Okay, so if you do want to read more about and possibly donate to the organizations we mentioned, I do have the links in my show notes. Also, K-Squared was wondering in the episode whether the general population of Korea has a good awareness of HIV AIDS. I recently read that last month in May 2022, an HIV awareness campaign was launched in Korea involving YouTube influencers. According to an article I found on Globe Newswire, quote, Besides raising awareness on HIV testing, the campaign also highlights the importance of pre-exposure prophylaxis, PrEP, a medication that is highly effective at preventing HIV transmission when taken as prescribed, end quote. Special thanks to Radica and K-Squared for joining me for today's episode and for their research. Please check out the GoGo Gaio podcast, which you can find a link to in my show notes. As a reminder, you can reach me on social media on Instagram at kpopbookshelfpod and on Twitter at kpopbookshelf. You can also email me at kpopbookshelfpod at gmail.com. Be sure to check my blog to see the sources I used for researching this episode. The links in my bio and show notes will take you there. Special thanks to AO for designing my blog. As always, if you enjoyed today's episode, please tell a friend about this podcast. Okay, thanks, bye!